The scripture reading today comes from 2 Samuel 24, uh, verses 1 through 4, 10, and 18 through 25. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I might know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. It's verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. This is verse 18 through 25. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from me, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. The word of the Lord. There's a fascinating article I came across years ago about a man who landed himself uh, in jail after getting arrested for a hit and run. He was driving home late one night and struck a child of all things, and he was so distraught about it that he fled the scene and was jailed because of it. Well, with all the time in the world for him to think about what he had done, he began to reflect on his life, and there was a memory he came up with when he was a child and was playing with his father's favorite watch something he had been told not to look at. Well, as circumstances go, he ends up breaking the watch. Well, his father comes home and flew off into a rage about it, of course, and demanded to know who broke it. And the man said that, terrified, obviously, he retreated to his room and insisted to his father that he didn't know who did it. Well, the lie worked. But it didn't just get him out of a sticky situation. It actually buried itself inside of him. And what he would say later on was, from that point on, I began to be the kind of man who manipulated circumstances, who would bend and shade the truth, who would run from responsibilities. He said, I didn't start my life as a hit and run killer, but I was on that trajectory after these little tiny decisions and mundane daily choices. I've since become fascinated with this question. Is there an event in your life that you can look back on and say, that most shaped me to be who I am today? 
could be mundane things, simple choices. Maybe they weren't traumatic at all, just moments when, on looking back, you see the sum of your life encapsulated in that event or that season or that decision. But who you are has become a result of those experiences, or maybe better yet, how you've come to interpret those experiences. Well, we're wrapping up our study through the life of David and come to the end of 2 Samuel, and we have a really weird story to finish with. There's a lot of confusing questions here and not a ton of explanation for why what happened did. Kind of feels a little bit like an anticlimax to the life of David. But remember, these writers are not writing biographies as you and I know them. Rather, what they're offering is, is a theological, very highly reflective interpretation over these major characters. Uh, one scholar I consulted, actually almost every scholar I consulted, pointed out the fact that what this whole section between chapter 21 through 24 is, is what we might call a mirror parallel of each other. In other words, chapter 21 and 24 just kind of hang together. Same thing with chapter 21 and 23, while David's song and prayer in the middle is sort of the hinge between them. Uh, scholars will refer to this as a chiastic structure. They do it in Hebrew poetry all the time. Now, the good news is you don't need to know this for the test, but they're doing it so often it helps us understand where this last story that we have on that last point fits within the larger context. Because what it means then is, is we see Samuel is simply using these last few stories to sum up David's life. He's wanting us to realize that these couple of events were emblematic of his life. So when you can point back to these events in your own life and say, man, everything you need to know about me, you can see in seedling form in this particular story from my early childhood or something. This story, in many ways, sums up David's life in really profound ways. In other words, what I feel like the writer has given us is this convenient way of digesting David's life into a single story that is packed with significance, by the way, and has a number of features for our purposes this morning. I want to name three of them. We see sovereignty, first of all, coming out of the story, sin and judgment, and then also an idea of atonement. Let's jump into that first one. Because the fun starts right at the gate. Have your passage open in front of you. Because verse 1 is where it starts. Again, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. All right, you can see the hard questions coming out right away. Number one, why was the Lord angry at Israel? Uh, number two, why was it bad for David to start a census? And then, honestly, most troublesome is why did God incite David to do something that was wrong? Well, the first question is relatively simple about, you know, why was God angry at Israel? Answer, we don't have any idea. But honestly, when you survey the history of Israel up to this point, probably not all that hard to imagine that they probably found, I don't know, yet another way to offend against God's commands. And so the bottom line is we don't have any information about that in the story. So it might, must not be pertinent to what we must know. So we leave that one unanswered. The second question about why the census was bad, I'm going to answer in my second point. But I want to get to that last question because it's super troublesome. Because what that verse says is, is it appears that God was egging David on to conduct a census so that he could judge Israel that way. Hmm. I can actually make it even more complex. Most of you remember, because I've referred to it a number of times this semester, that there is a mirror parallel passage of David's story in the books of First and Second Chronicles. You know that. It's a retelling of David's life. 
Well, this story is there too. But if you go to 1 Chronicles 21.1, it starts this way. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Uh, all right. <laughs> so was it God who stirred up and tempted David or was it the devil? You starting to feel the uh, uncomfortableness of all this? Well, look, let's begin this discussion by being very clear. For those of us who embrace the infallibility of the Bible, which we do at this particular church, we feel the urgency to make a couple of things clear from other places in the Bible. Number one, God is not the author of sin. That's absolutely explicit. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So God is not the author of sin in any way. Secondly, though, we know that the devil, however, is very much on God's leash. That is, in, you, you take this story of the book of Job. Remember the early openings of Job where the devil appears before God and makes some appeals about Job's life? What it says in chapter 1, verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So you hear that? There's a couple of things we can say here, I think, when we deal with the very difficult passage. And it's simply this, first of all. I think the Bible has a very compelling picture of how God and evil work in the universe. And don't be fooled, this is a huge problem for people. Because it kind of feels like the ultimate gotcha, doesn't it? I mean, well, the skeptic says, like, I mean, how can you have a God who is all-powerful and all-good? If he's all-powerful, he would have gotten rid of evil by now. And if he's all good, he would have done it and wanted to do it. But because there's all kinds of evil in the world, there's no way there's a God. That's very compelling for people. Typically, it is the problem of evil that will be used as a reason for people to abandon biblical Christianity. But here's the Bible's way of dealing with, with, with this. And, and not, I'm going to own that it doesn't resolve all the questions. But it does suggest to us that God acts, and I'm going to use this phrase, in a permissive way when it comes to the evil that he allows. In other words, what you see the biblical authors doing is creating, to some degree, degrees of separation between the acts of evil that go on and God who is sovereignly directing all things in the Bible. Hence, in the book of Job, the devil is granted his desire to inflict what he did on Job, but notice it's hedged about by God's sovereignty. God will order and limit what he's able to do. It reminded me of a story from a pastor friend who had his, I think then four-year-old child and was walking through a department store on a particular busy holiday season. And the child very obnoxiously kept pulling away from my friend to go explore other parts of the department store. Well, he kept jerking him back and trying to get him to sort of stay by his side so he wouldn't get lost. Until the umpteenth time when he pulls away, my friend decided to be like, you know what? knock yourself out. And he let his son go. Now he always stayed in the shadows watching exactly where he was. The child was in danger at no time, but it only took about five, maybe 10 minutes before the child suddenly froze, looked around, did not see his parents and realized that he was lost. And at that moment, my pastor friend sort of popped out, scolded him, of course, and uh, told him not to pull away from his father again. That's fairly illustrative about how God handles sin because what we don't realize is that evil in the world comes with its own inertia. It has a dynamic to it. 
And that dynamic is always the destruction of the host. Evil is moving in that direction, which also means that left to itself, evil will burn itself out. This is really interesting. You see this in lots of places in Scripture. David himself, interestingly enough, in Psalm 7, iterates this beginning in verse 14. Listen to how it says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Listen to this. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole he made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, violence descends. Do you see what he's saying? In other words, there are, re- there are seasons when God allows evil to do what evil does by withdrawing his hand and allowing things to go where they will normally go without intervention. But he's always in the wings, seeing it all and containing it within the bounds of his own permissive will. That's the way theologians grapple with these differences between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. But my guess is that's not satisfying for the more philosophically bent of you in the room. And that sort of brings me to my second point from this question, which is simply this. There really ought to be times when we're reading our Bibles and it blows our minds. God still ought to be in a place where he can freak us out and not understand everything that he's doing. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever so that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, God doesn't always need to explain himself to his creatures. But what we do have, at least his biographers understood, is for us to be used to serve him. And so for that reason, we can take heart, right? In the face of God's sovereignty, we now have the assurance that all of my mistakes well, or even worse, my outright rebellion is not so far out from the Lord's will that he can't still use them to teach me, to restore me. In other words, I simply don't want to live in a world without God's sovereignty over evil in the world. Can I figure it out? No. But I need to know that there's hope and that I don't live in a random universe. I used to tell students all the time that I would rather confess ignorance about God's ways in the world then remove him completely from the picture and lose all hope. So yes, the story of David is a great story of God's sovereignty over the universe. But there's a second part of this story. And that comes in taking our second question about sin and judgment. So the question is, what was wrong with the census? Well, the first thing we know is that taking censuses in general was not forbidden by God. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, there's this whole discussion about a census tax that was supposed to be levied to the people of Israel that God himself directed. So there's no condemnation of censuses as such. The key, I think, you find is when you consider David's context. At this stage in Israel's growth, more than likely, David was using what might be known as a volunteer army. That is, they were only to be called up when there was something to defend against. But what the census census of the fighting men suggests is that David is moving towards what we might call a conscripted army, or an army that was actually going to be a standing army, right? Now, why would someone want to do that? Well, simply because you oftentimes would want to be like the other nations around them who prided themselves on being feared about their overwhelming power. Oh, oh, your country has 50,000 fighting men. Our nation has 100,000. And you better watch out 
because we're coming for you. But see, look, God is trying to establish Israel as a light to the nations. These are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. But when David begins to sort of be preoccupied with these fighting men, does it not suggest that he's starting to think a little bit more like a despot than a good king? This was supposed to show the world about a different way to deal with national life. But David suddenly is showing he's headed in the opposite direction. His reign is about to be summed up by might and power, he's tempted to do, rather than by wisdom and by justice. Look, by way of example, go back and remember the sermon that we did from 1 Samuel chapter 15. And King Saul, David's predecessor, his failure with the Amalekites. Remember this story? <laughs> these, were, th these are some extraordinarily bloodthirsty and cruel, oppressive people. And of course, when they amassed an army, they did so, so that they could raid weaker countries to plunder them or enslave them otherwise. And so God ordered Saul to wipe them out completely for their crimes. It's an act of justice on God's part. But do you remember what Saul did and what angered God? He kept some of the livestock and the spoil. And God looked at him and said, you can no longer be king. You think to yourself, why? Well, the answer is if Saul had kept one penny of spoil from that military victory, he would have been on the trajectory to become just like the Amalekites that were supposed to be being judged. In other words, God orders Saul to wipe them out because he's saying, I'm, I'm trying to show that I'm doing a different thing here. And so when all of a sudden David begins to say, let's take our military temperature, he's showing that he's being tempted to act exactly the way Saul was. And God's not going to have it. And so David himself sums up the right way to do this in Psalm 20, verse 7, when he said, some trust in chariots and horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So David's census was an act of self-sufficiency. It was pride. And it was threatening to get underneath what was going to make Israel unique in the world. I think it's kind of funny. When, when Joab, your faithful general and certainly no moral paragon himself, tells you this is not a good idea, it's probably not a good idea. And of course, we didn't have a chance to read it. But after David kind of comes to his senses, there's a judgment that gets delivered. It's a weird story. David has given some choices. But ultimately, God sovereignly leads David to the choice of having a plague wipe out 70,000 of his men by an angel who's wielding some sort of plague. It's a terrible story. And the question is, why would God choose that particular punishment? Why would he lead David to that? Well, because now he can't even muster an army at all. In other words, what you have is, is God judging his people precisely at the point of their unbelief, fixating on it as it were. Do not put your trust in a standing army, David. You put your trust in me. And now that's all you have left. Look, there's a point here, I think, and a lesson for us, because it means that God will oftentimes bring us into the consequences of our sin that often meet us at the very point of our need for healing. I feel like it's come to my attention in the last nine months that this is oftentimes can happen in churches. Churches are growing. Maybe ministries are expanding. There's success at every turn. When all of a sudden, a string of very difficult pastoral issues arises and things come to a screeching halt. And we cry out to the Lord, why? Why is this happening? And the answer is, is because God is always about the business of training his people to live not by sight, but by faith in his providence and care. This is going to be 
his work he's leading us into. Which ought to make you ask the question, well, how is he going to do that? What is he, how is he going to teach us to live by faith and not by sight? Brings me to my third point in summary of David's life. Because you see these themes coming out. You've got God's sovereign reign guaranteeing David's success, or at least the success of his lineage, despite all of his failings and sin. But there's one more thing that First and Second Samuel is also about. And this is the fact that God is always rescuing David. Always. And not only that, David is always responding with repentance. I think there's a case to be made that First and Second Samuel are really books of redemption and atonement. And I love how you see that. You see it in two areas of this story. First of all, look at verse 10 again. It says there, but David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Ooh, anybody recognize that? We've heard that phrase before, haven't we? That is exactly the Hebrew phrase that David uttered when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet for his whole Bathsheba affair. But there's something different about this time. Because this time, there was no prophet there to get up in David's face. Isn't that interesting? I was looking at a commentary that made what I thought was a fascinating point. It said that for the first time, we have David being confronted, but not from the outside in, but from the inside out. I find it fascinating. The literal translation of that first part of verse 10, where it says David's heart, you know, sort of struck him. That word struck is actually a a very aggressive Hebrew word. It literally translated, David's heart attacked him. David's heart smote him, the old King James used to say. It beat him up. It's an aggressive term, but fascinating, isn't it? When was the last time your heart beat you up? Ever thought about that? Left you for dead. Something rose up inside of David and tore him up internally, literally to pieces. Well, this commentary went on to suggest that what that means is, is David is actually progressing in his ability to repent. I know it looks like it's a disaster at the end of his life, but from God's perspective, David is getting better. I mean, it took a two by four up against the side of his head to shake him out of the whole adultery justification. But this other sin is a lot more subtle, isn't it? It's about power and it's about justice. But I would argue what you see at the end of 2 Samuel is a man who has grown. He is getting better. And what he's telling us, I think, is that spiritual maturity is not to be defined by someone who doesn't mess up. That is a pipe dream. Spiritual maturity is measured by how quickly you repent. When you bring constructive criticism to that kind of spiritually mature person, they respond to you with thankfulness because they're glad. The repentance is at their fingertips. They want to be there. And so in my opinion, the most spiritual leaders in any gathering of the body of Christ are those who repent the most deeply. They repent the quickest. They withhold themselves from the bitterness. They they don't avoid the publicity or the joyfulness that comes from finally letting something go. Why? Because they've come to know that their standing before God is not based on their performance or their lack thereof. Now, how might that happen? Well, that brings me to the second aspect of atonement here. And that is the strangeness of the latter part that Philip read for us. Did you notice how weird it is, all the ton of detail we get about David sort of going out and sort of purchasing this whole deal and building this altar? 
Here's how the story goes. David is sort of down in the city of David on this rise in Jerusalem. But just up the hill from him, there's a man by the name of Arana who lives and owns there a big, flat, rather smooth field where he takes his grain harvest out and sifts it. He threshes it. It's where they take it up, throw it up, they, the dust falls off, and the healthy husk go down inside the, uh, or the healthy seed goes down inside the basket. Well, David looks out from his own place and he sees this, this plague angel, whatever that was, getting ready to strike again. And so he springs into action. And what he says is something actually really quite amazing. Look at verse 17. He says, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Whoa. Look, what's crazy about this story is, and there's all these amazing parallels and, and like hyperlinks to other significant biblical themes. But my question is simply this. Where did David get the idea that he would offer himself up for the lives of his people? Where did that notion come from? Don't punish them, Lord. Punish me instead. Let me take on myself the punishment that they deserve. Where would that come from? Especially after someone who did so wrong in this particular story. Well, look, this is what's nuts about this. Arana's land was a place where that kind of thing happened in the Bible like all the time. It's, it's crazy. If you go to the Chronicles version of this story, what we're told is, is this little plot of land where Arana lived was formerly known as Mount Moriah. Ring any bells with you? Mount Moriah was where Abraham took Isaac to offer his son, right? But was stopped from doing it. And there was a ram that he offered instead, one life for another. That's why when David sees the judgment of God coming down upon his people, he feels this instinct to offer himself. Why? Eventually, interestingly enough, we're going to learn that David's son, Solomon, he's actually going to build the giant temple on that plot of land. Arana's land. And what's going to happen at that temple? Constantly there's going to be sacrifices that are made. There's burnt offerings, blood that's shed. Why? So that it could cover the sins of the people. Now fast forward a few hundred years later and something unspeakably glorious happens when there, on the same threshing floor, Jesus, just yards away, is going to be crucified in the place of his people. Like, that's crazy on one spot of land. What you have here is you have what life under the king really is, what life under a true king really is. And there's this significant spot of terra firma throughout the entire history of the Old Testament where God is screaming to his people, we are substitutes for evil. We stand in on behalf of others. So it was a great week. I had a great week this week. My, um, I, my oldest, Anna Grace, was in town. You've heard me mention multiple times, and many of you have been praying for her. She's on staff at Covenant Prez up in Nashville and endured some of the uh, horrific stuff coming down out of that shooter taking place. I got to go with Anna Grace to one of the funerals that was up there, but she was telling me just this week about one of the other funerals that she attended without me. And it was the funeral of the husband of the substitute teacher that was killed. Well, apparently during the funeral, he got up to give a remembrance. And the only thing Anna Grace said that she remembered hearing him say was, I know that we're all here 
And we keep talking about the six victims, the three teachers and the three children that died in this horrific nightmare. He said, but there's actually a seventh person that got lost. And that's the shooter. And we need to remember today that there's another family out there in the midst of all of us hurting who's hurting also. And my question is, where does that happen? Where does a man standing up over his wife's casket find an instinct to want to look with his eyes, spiritually speaking, towards someone who probably no one thought deserved some kind of care and some kind of outreach? But here's the deal. By that expression of forgiveness, what he was doing was agreeing to take the loss of grief for his wife on himself. Why? So that others wouldn't suffer. And here's the kicker. That's what Christians do. The followers of King Jesus know that there is a place where over and over and over again sacrifices were offered. And who knows how much suffering has been averted since that nightmare situation in Nashville. How much suffering has been averted because of that guy's statement publicly? That we need to start to pray for the parents of that shooter. That's what we do. Because we're called to be a kingdom of priests. We come armed, do we not? With the smile of King Jesus, who himself offers us up. And rises again from the dead, guaranteeing that whatever you and I lose in this life will be made up for ad infinity in eternity. That's the difference. That is what life under the king really is like. And that's what Jesus does. He goes into every single soul and he implants a security and a joy and a peacefulness that says, I promise you, you can survive this. I promise you. Because I survived it worse. And because I survived and I overcame, I'm going to bring you with me. And suddenly there's a whole army of God's people who march out in the world and say, let me take it. Because all the world is doing is passing their evil along. Somebody commits evil and somebody's like, oh, and they go back and attack somebody else. And all it does is go generation, generation, generation. And God says, no, my people are going to be a stopgap. They're there to sort of contain the problem. What a, what a, what a what an amazing commission from our king to be those kind of people. What an amazing empowerment that he gives his people. Only he can produce that kind of security. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, you need to walk us into that because we, we go through seasons, we go through days, we go through months of wondering where your hand might be. But even as we suffer, Father, even as we struggle, even as we go through our own mistakes and failures, even though we're embarrassed of the things that we've done, you come alongside us and show us that you're the one who brings redemption. You're the one who rescues. You're the one who brings sacrifice to atone. And you raise from the dead in order to show us that it's not hopeless. So we ask this morning that you would show us that in vivid and beautiful ways as we sing to you and complete our joy that is in you by singing your praise. We ask that you would accept it with joy in Jesus' name. Amen.